You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of completing one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is sponsored by Antioch University's Low Residency MFA Program in Creative Writing. Want to learn how to write fiction, nonfiction, poetry, young adult, screenwriting, or playwriting in a two-year program that's mostly remote? Apply by visiting antioch.edu slash apply. Hi, my name is Jean Chen Ho, and I wrote a book called Fiona and Jane. Jean Chen Ho is a writer and doctoral candidate in creative writing and literature at the University of Southern California, where she is a Dornzai Fellow in fiction. She has an MFA from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and her writing has been published in Guernica, The Rumpus, The Offing, Apogee, McSweeney's Internet Tendency, Vida, NPR, BuzzFeed, Bitch Magazine, and others. She was born in Taiwan, grew up in Southern California, and lives in Los Angeles. Fiona and Jane is a witty, warm, and irreverent book that traces the lives of two young Taiwanese-American women as they navigate friendship, sexuality, identity, and heartbreak over two decades. Best friends since second grade, Fiona Lin and Jane Shen explore the lonely highways and seedy bars of Los Angeles together through their teenage years, surviving unfulfilling romantic encounters and carrying the scars of their families' tumultuous pasts with them. Fiona was always destined to leave, her effortless beauty burnished by fierce ambition, qualities that Jane admired and feared in equal measure. When Fiona moves to New York and cares for a sick friend through a breakup with an opportunistic boyfriend, Jane remains in California and grieves her estranged father's sudden death, in the process alienating an overzealous girlfriend. Strained by distance and unintended betrayals, the women float in and out of each other's lives, their friendship both a beacon of home and a reminder of all they've lost. I began writing this book as a part of my MFA thesis. So the book is a short story collection, but the stories are linked. So there's recurring characters, the two characters, Fiona and Jane, who are in the title, but it's also about their family, their friends, their love lives, their world. Now that it's five, six years later, all the ones that were in the MFA thesis have totally been revised and changed and reworked. But the idea for the stories about two women who were best friends growing up and you follow them through their 20s and 30s and you get to know each of them individually in their lives, you see them come back together. That's how the stories began. I was just really trying to get to know each of these characters as individuals. I think at that point, I didn't quite know what it meant to put a quote unquote short story collection or put a book together. I just didn't know what that meant because of course it was a dream of mine to have a book, but that just seemed like so fantastical, like to the point of delusion that I just didn't think it was really possible. So I was just, you know, at that point really working on individual stories and just trying to get to know these characters. And then after I graduated from the MFA, and I wonder if this happens to a lot of people, you sort of just need a little break from the intensity of that space. So I put the manuscript away. At that point, the manuscript was probably only about a hundred pages. I had been working on it so intensely in the last year of my MFA. I probably didn't touch it for a good 
six months or a year. And then in that time, I did my MFA at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. So I moved back from Vegas to LA and I was trying to do some freelance writing and just sort of settle back into LA where I'm from. In that year, I applied to PhD programs and I was accepted at USC. And so the following fall, I started the PhD in creative writing and literature program at USC. In that whole year, I didn't really work on fiction. I was doing a lot of freelance journalism. I was writing nonfiction. I wrote a couple of humor pieces for McSweeney's Internet Tendency. I was just trying a lot of different modes of writing in that time. And then about a year later, I felt like I was ready to return to this manuscript and start looking at the stories again. And because I was starting the, the PhD program at USC, I was in workshops again. I started to revisit some of those stories and then to also write new ones that were in this universe with these two women. And that's how the collection got built story by story. I like to write in the morning. What I do is I write in my notebook first because I feel like writing manually with a pen and a notebook stirs up some energy that I like to have before I go to the computer. And then I go to the computer and, you know, usually I have a sense from the previous day of where I left off and what I need to address today. I know that I'm in the middle of writing a new story. Okay, what I'll do at the end of the day is I'll leave myself a little note that says, okay, tomorrow you need to write that she goes to the moon and what happens when she goes to the moon. I'm working on a novel right now, and that's a very different process than all of these stories. But that's what I've been doing is leaving myself a little note at the end of the draft so that it's like a little breadcrumb from the previous day. I give myself a very realistic goal of trying to write just for one hour. And then often what ends up happening is that I'll go beyond that hour and it just feels amazing. Like I exceeded my goal. And then other times, I only day for that hour and then I just feel like, oh, I'm too tired today. I, the muses are not coming to me. They're mad at me or whatever. But as long as I make it to that hour, that I count as a work day. And this part is very important. I mark it in a little calendar notebook. And what I try to do is I try to get to 100 days in a year. Maybe that sounds like a very paltry goal. But actually, I think getting to 100 days of writing in 365 days is excellent. You know, some days you have personal things you have to attend to. Other days you have to take care of your family, your job, and things just come up. Any day that you can make just one hour for your writing, I think is amazing. At the end of those 100 days, you know, you're going to have a good chunk of writing in your computer. And that's something to celebrate. I think giving yourself little treats is also really important. So I always buy myself nice little pens or <laughs> fancy notebooks. Also, in the pandemic, I've been walking down to Little Doms here in Los Feliz, where I live, and I get their chocolate chip cookies as a little treat at the end of the week. So overall, I think my daily writing routine is that I have like that big overarching goal of 100 days of writing a year. And it's important that I mark it down so that I have a sense of moving toward that goal. And then on just like a daily goal, 
it's very important for me to be like, I'm just going to write for one hour. And if I go beyond, that's amazing. The other thing I say is that I try my best not to look at my phone or check my emails until 11 a.m. or in the afternoon if I can, because I know that as soon as I pick up my phone to see if I have any texts from the morning or any emails coming in, like my brain is just in a different space. But I'm going to do that hour of writing. I try to preserve my energy for that. The first draft for me usually takes, I would say, at least a month. And, you know, because I've been working on this book for so long, I'm trying to remember what it's like to actually write a first draft from, you know, a blank page because for so long I've just been revising. And so it's actually been a while since I've started just writing a fresh new story from page one. And I tell this to my students too. The first draft for me is always a draft where I'm still figuring things out. And so I'm not really trying to make sure I have the perfect sentence or I get everything right. I think what I tell myself with the first draft is I'm just kind of looking around and trying to see where this takes me. Usually I start with a sense of a character or a voice, and there's something that the character is trying to tell me or is trying to figure out or a question that she's trying to consider. Beyond that, I don't always know much more. That's the sense of my first draft. And then from there, I just let this character tell me what she wants to tell me. And then I end up with 15, 20, 25 pages of this. And it's usually a big mess. And then what I have to do is not look at it for at least a couple of days or a week. It becomes clear what is interesting to you about this story when you read it again, if you give yourself some space. From there... I underline or I figure out like, oh, this is where she's having this issue or she's having this problem or there's some intractability in this situation that she's trying to figure out. The second draft sometimes has to be writing again from a blank page. And I tell that to my students too sometimes and they're just like, oh my God, that's awful. But I don't know. I think that's just part of the process sometimes. Like you write your first draft. It's like 15, 20, 25 pages, however long it is, because you had to have written that to figure out who this character is and what this world is. And from there, it's like you have all of this subterranean knowledge, right? And then you keep all of that and you start again and you start on a blank page, or maybe you just keep a paragraph or a page out of that first draft and you start again. And you do that about 50 more times and then you, and then you get to the, the, you know, your story finally at the end. My approach to revision is it helps to be organized. So for individual stories, So there's a step of revision that you do when you're still working on it on your own before you are ready to show it to any of your trusted readers and friends. And then there's revision that you do after you've gotten that feedback. So you will show this story to 
your workshop or to your writing group, and then you're going to get 50 different comments. And I think that part is a little disconcerting. At least it's always a little disconcerting for me when I get notes back from readers about a new story. What I'll usually do is I'll read all the notes right away because I think that if you let the notes sit, you're not going to remember the energy of the workshop as much. And I think it's important to sort of know your own reaction to the workshop as you were listening to everybody talking about your work and what felt true to you and what your gut tells you about people's reaction, because ultimately it's your story, right? After the workshop or after my friends have given me notes on the story and we've talked it through, I will sit down in a quiet space and read over all the written notes. And I'll start a new list on my own of all the things that I'm thinking about. Like, oh, this is the place where they thought this character was a little bit unclear or questions that I need to address. And I'll come up with the list, right? And there might be five to 10 different things on that list. Some of them could be very technical, like the dialogue in this part of the story needs to feel a little more snappy or the exposition in this part of the story feels like it's dragging a bit and I need to cut that down. Or this is a place where I need to expand, give a little more. So I have a list. And then what I'll do after I have that list is I will decide which items are the easiest and I'll number the list from easiest to hardest. So like for me personally, dialogue and editing dialogue is always really fun. That's probably not the case for everyone, but I really enjoy working with dialogue. I just think it's so much fun. I also love eavesdropping, but that's another story. So anyway, the point is that I'll, I'll number my list from easiest to hardest, and then I'll just work down the list. And it's really important for me to have this list because I think whenever I try to revise without a list, I sometimes have this delusion like, oh, I'll just go on intuition <laughs> and I'll just follow what my gut says. And sometimes that can work. But for me, for the most part, I need to have a list because in the revision process, I will sometimes spiral into existential crisis and I'll feel like, oh my God, this whole story is awful. I should just throw the whole thing away. What's the point of this? What am I even doing with my life? And having a list really helps me sort of keep all of that under control. So that's generally how I approach revising an individual story. And then after I've gone through the list, what I like to do is I'll put my edits into the computer. I will print it out as a hard copy. I will mark it up with my pen just because I feel like there's, again, a different energy with just using a pen instead of doing everything on screen. After I marked it up with a pen, I will put those edits back into the computer again. And that is my new draft. I will maybe let it sit cold for a couple of days and reread it, or maybe I'll send it back to my writing group, you know, or my workshop or a trusted friend to read it again. And then you do that 50 more times and you get to a story. <laughs> Gosh, this is going to sound sort of crazy. And I did not know I would do this till I got to the stage where I had 10 stories that you know, could conceivably be a book that I made a spreadsheet and I 
am not a spreadsheet person. I don't really know how to use Excel all that well, but visually it has capabilities that a Word document doesn't. So a Word document is obviously great for making a list, like I was just saying. But with the Excel spreadsheet, you can use color blocking and you can move the cells around. It's really useful when you're putting a book together to sort of have a whole map in front of you. One of the things that I wanted to do when I was revising the collection before I went out to editors and things like that, I was working with my agent and I knew that I had to sort of decide what themes were coming through to connect the stories and to also find an arc or arcs that would move throughout the book. In my Excel spreadsheet, I had columns for one of the arcs in the book. Jane, in the first story, she's in high school and she goes to Taipei on her spring break to visit her father who has moved there a couple years ago. And the relationship that Jane has with her father is one of the arcs that moves throughout the book. So in my Excel spreadsheet, I had that as a column. I marked, okay, these are the places where we learn more about Jane's father in different stories. And then another arc was about Fiona's relationship with her mother. So Fiona grew up with a single mother. And in the second story in Fiona and Jane, we learn the history of how Fiona's mother became a young mother and how they ended up in the US. And so another column that I had in my spreadsheet was this relationship and how it moves throughout the collection, what gets revealed about their relationship throughout the 20 years that span the book. One of the things that I did not know I had to do, and this was like so painful for me because I hate doing math, <laughs> was that I had to figure out how old they were and like what year it was and where each one was like in relationship to one another. And, you know, those are just sort of like fact checking errors. So the Excel spreadsheet helped me figure out all that math and like what year it was, how old was Fiona's mother at this point. So that means when Fiona's 25, her mom is how old? Just facts that you have to keep track of when you're putting a book together. The Excel spreadsheet has stayed with me from you know, before I sold the book to working with my agent, even now that after I sold the book and now I'm working with my editor at Viking, I use this Excel spreadsheet to figure out ultimately what the order of the story. So the sequencing was going to end up being Excel has always seemed like something that accountants use or something. Turns out it's also great for fiction writers. When I had about 50,000 words altogether in my manuscript, I felt like, okay, I'm getting really close to a point where this is becoming a book. So 50,000 words, that's probably about, you know, close to 200 pages. I think that that's where you want to be. Somewhere between 50, 50 is a little low, I think, but somewhere between 50 and 80,000 words is a good place to be. And so you feel like you have a substantial manuscript. At that point, 
I had published a couple of stories from the manuscript and some agents had emailed me or I had met people going to writers conferences, that sort of thing. But before I had the manuscript ready, I just didn't feel like I even wanted to talk to any agents about representation because it just made me so nervous. At one point, I realized, okay, my manuscript is becoming a thing where I think I might be emotionally ready to show it to an agent. The querying process for me was talking to friends who had books or were also querying agents or, you know, had some experience there. I also, of course, Google the internet for advice. And I came up with a list of agents, about like five to 10 agents who I thought represented authors whose work I really enjoyed. Oh, and something else you can do is go to the bookstore and read the acknowledgement section of books that you find interesting and authors that you find interesting and see who represents them. So you make a list of these agents and you try to see if you have friends who know them or if they have information on the internet about whether they're open to queries. Of course, also on this list were people who had reached out to me and said, when you're ready with your manuscript, I'd love to take a look. My process was sending out my little 50,000 word manuscript to this list of people and having meetings with the ones who were interested in representing me and seeing where they thought this manuscript could grow or needed edits. I ended up with my agents, Aisha Pandey and Serene Hakim. And Aisha is, she owns the agency and it's a boutique agency based in New York City. I just felt like after a conversation with the two of them that we ha- we just had a wonderful conversation about my book. And I felt like I just had a good vibe with them. So I signed with them. And at that point, I remember the phone call we had, Aisha asking me very pointedly, Jean, are you committed to making edits to this manuscript before we sent it out for submission. I think that was her way of being just very clear that this this manuscript is not ready to go out yet. Like we wanna represent you, but you still have a substantial amount of work to do. (laughs) So I'm glad that she made that really clear. I mean, this is not gonna be the case with everyone. You know, some people get signed for representation based on one story they publish. Or some people meet their agents through writers' conferences or through their professors and things like that. Other people, maybe they sign with an agent and their manuscript is so lovely that the agent is like, we love this and we're going to start sending it out next week. I don't know. I mean, there's so many different ways of going about this. For me personally, with Fiona and Jane, you know, Aisha was like, we want to work with you, but you need to work on this. And I said, yes. I want to be with the agency and I will work on this based on your notes and we'll see how far we get. That was a very exciting moment for me, but it was also really scary because now my little 50,000 word manuscript was going to have the possibility of being a thing that exists in the world, right? So I remember feeling like, oh my God, is this really happening? Even though this is obviously what I've been working towards for you know, the last five years, right? After I signed with the agency, we worked on the manuscript for at least a year, I would say. And then 
what happens is, you know, you go out on submission and then find the right house for you. And then you work on the book with your editor for another year or two years. So it's a very long process with a lot of moving parts. And I'm still in it right now. Like, you know, we're doing this podcast about a year out from when my book is going to actually be released. So I'm waiting for copy edits to come back right now on my manuscript. So it never ends. The book submission process is really interesting because it's exciting to know that you're so close, you know, and you have so many hopes for where your book will end up. And then, of course, it's it comes with a lot of anxiety. My book was a preempted by Viking, so that means that my editor at Viking wanted to make a move to buy this book and close it off to any other bidders. And that was what my agents thought was a very positive thing for my manuscript. And they thought that the editor was somebody who was respected and a good match for me. And Viking has put out books that they thought were in line with what Fiona and Jane could look like when I was out on the market. So I had a talk with my editor there. We spoke about what edits she thought I needed to do. At that point, I said that when I signed with the agency, my book was about 50,000 words. And after working on the book, before I went on a submission, at that point, it was probably about closer to 70 or 80,000 words. So I spoke with my editor at Viking about what she thought would happen in the editorial process. And everything happened so fast. And it was kind of a dream, I have to say. I don't know if that makes me sound like an asshole, but <laughs> I'm very happy with where I ended up. And the publishing process with Viking has been so lovely and pleasant. I don't know. I, I still have 10 more months, so things could all go to shit. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but I feel very lucky to be where I'm at with the book. For me, the process of querying agents was much more scary and harrowing than the book submission process. And I think that might just be because when you're querying agents, it's just you directly. You know what I mean? Like you're just refreshing your inbox every day, waiting to see who's replied or who wants your full manuscript, who passed on you. But when you're going on the book submission process, you have that layer of protection between you and whatever is happening with the editors. Like your agents will tell you the news and I don't know that. So it feels a little less scary. In terms of my rejections, this happens to everyone, right? Like the rejections come in and they're all so nice. It's always a version of it's not you, it's me. You know, like when you're dating someone and they tell you something like that. And I think it's just a normal part of the process. You know, like everybody gets rejections, whether it's your book submission or if you're sending individual stories out to be published. There's so much rejection in trying to publish in this industry, whether it's literary journals or fellowships and residencies that you're applying for. I think that you have to get used to the fact that if you want to go after this, 90% of the time you are going to get rejected. And I think when you're starting out, 
when I was first starting to send out stories, it was really scary. And I was really sensitive to rejections, right? And oh, this is another instance where I use spreadsheets. So I would, I made a spreadsheet of my submissions and, you know, you mark down what stories you're sending out and maybe you have that story sent out to five different places. And then sometimes the rejection comes back within a month and other times it's like they'd never even get back to you for eight months or something like that. What I ended up doing with this spreadsheet of my submissions is that at the end of the year, I mark down, this is the, the most math that I'll ever do, but I'll write down in my spreadsheet, like how many outlets I submitted to. And I count everything from lit mags to residencies, to fellowships, everything, pitches that I'm trying to send out there for nonfiction things or freelance things that I'm writing. And I try to get to a hundred submissions if I can. At the end of the year, I write down how many places I submitted to, and then I do the math of how many places said yes to me, how many places said, we're going to waitlist you, how many places gave me a nice rejection, like a personal rejection. And that might look like, oh, you know, we read this story and we talked about it, but not quite right for this issue, but feel free to send us your work in the future. And then, you know, most of the time, I would say like 90% of the time, 85% of the time, it's just form rejections. It's just like, no, dear writer, thank you for <laughs> thank you for sending us this thing that you poured your heart and soul into. <laughs> you know, you just, you have to keep going and rejection is a part of the process. My book, Fiona and Jane, will be published by Viking, which is an imprint at Penguin Random House. And I think, I think it was a surprise for me to land there because it's just such a dream. And throughout this process, you know, I've been working with my editor and that part is very intimate. It's just the two of us talking on the phone, then me working on these stories and sending them to her one by one. And then she sends them back to me. And then that is just the two of us. But I think what's been surprising is that beyond that, there are so many people who are helping me work on this book. And, and I just didn't really have a sense of that before I became a part of this team. It feels very sometimes it feels a little overwhelming but mostly i just feel like wow this is wonderful so for example a couple months ago they started sending me drafts of what the cover might look like and the person who designed the cover is the art director at viking and you know we went through a couple of rounds with different design elements different colors different fonts and things like that I don't know. I guess I just, I didn't know what it would feel like to go through that part of the process, that there was going to be this amazing artist and designer and illustrator who I would get to work with. Beyond that, I'm having conversations with my editor or she's telling me about reactions from the sales and marketing team. And so these are people at Penguin Random House who work with booksellers, independent booksellers all over the country. I don't totally have a sense of all the minutiae of how all of that works, but the sense that I get is that there's people who work at the company who are reading my manuscript and they're going to work with booksellers and retailers to get this book out in the world. 
And I don't know, to me, that's just, it's so exciting. And I'm so grateful for that. I think that before I sold the book to Viking, of course, I had so many people in my personal life, dear friends and professors and mentors who had helped me put this manuscript together. I'm so grateful for all of those people to have helped me on my journey. But those people are like friends of mine, people I know who with whom I have a relationship. You know what I mean? So it feels like they're going to help me because they care about me. It's been really interesting to, to be a part of a publisher and to be an author at a company where, I don't know, maybe that sounds really like naive or something. I just, I just didn't imagine that there would be so many people who would be working on this book, getting it out in the world. And I don't know, I just, I'm still processing that, I think, but it's, it's very cool. My advice to anyone who wants to write is that we have so much time. I think that in my life, I'm, I'm sort of an impatient person. Like I always just want things to happen right away. I want people to just do what I want. I feel like there's points in my journey where I've been like, oh my God, I just, I, I just want to publish a story. You know, I just want to, I just want to get the story published. I just want to get an agent. I just want to, you know, sell my book and do all these things. But it's important to have a sense of abundance when it comes to time. I don't know if that sounds a little hokey, but the sense that I've had, and maybe this is because we've been in the pandemic for a year, is that it's okay to, to slow down and to really just take your time. This is about making art and it's really about examining yourself what's really important that you want to put out there? Like, what are the concerns that are plaguing you that won't leave you alone? And why are you so concerned with these ideas? That's why we write, don't you think? Because we're trying to figure out these questions about what it means to be a human. And that takes a lot of reflection and that takes a lot of time. And so I think it's okay to have a sense of that that it doesn't have to happen tomorrow or this week. There's a lot of time left to write the stories that you want to write. And now, a reading from Fiona and Jane. This is an excerpt from a story called The Night Market. My last evening in Taiwan, my father wanted to show me Shiling Night Market. We rode the subway, transferring at Taipei Main Station for the northbound Green Line. Saturday night, the market was jammed with people strolling up and down the arteries of the main thoroughfare. Baba and I dragged along with the crowd, pausing here and there to browse the wares. We'd made up from the fight in the car driving down Yamingshan Mountain yesterday, at least for now. He promised to rethink the new university contract and seriously consider coming back to the States for good. The air was saturated by the scent of grilled meat, custard pudding and red bean pies, propane fumes, and human sweat. Deep house music pumped out of every other storefront speaker as vendors shouted into megaphones pointed at the passing hordes. Two-for-one ladies' cotton underwear, genuine leather sandals for men, Motorola flip phones, and locked here, DVDs, CDs, 
Come take a look. At the food section in the back of the market, Baba stood in line to order us bowls of oyster vermicelli while I staked out seats at the communal table set up in the center of the stalls. We dipped into the noodles. The oysters floated on top, fat and glistening as polished jewels. Listen, May, there's one more person who wanted to see you before you leave, Baba said between bites. I asked if it was another relative. If Baba sensed my irritation, he didn't show it. Before this trip, I hadn't seen my father in two and a half years since he took this job. But in the last week, my spring break, I'd barely spent any time with him alone. Every day, another banquet dinner with dozens of cousins, uncles, and aunties, family friends who asked if I remembered them from the last time I visited Taipei when I was just a kid. You can call him Uncle Lee, one of his college buddies, my father explained. For a second, he looked like he had more to add. He's been a good friend to me, Baba said finally. That's him over there now. Baba lifted a hand and waved. The man waved back and made his way to our table. He moved with the compressed energy of a wrestler, his chin slightly down, arms swinging deliberately as if ready to grapple at a moment's notice. Lee wore a red tank top with a cartoon duck printed on the chest. The hems tucked into a pair of tight black jeans, an FOB outfit that would have caught stares back home. But here, he looked cool, I thought. My baby daughter, Baba said. Uncle Lee, I said in Mandarin, pleased to meet you. Sit down, sit down. He offered his hand to me and I shook it. A big lady, tall like old Shen here. She takes after her mother more than me. I should hope so with your teeth, said Lee, and they both laughed. He extracted a blue handkerchief from the nylon fanny pack around his waist and wiped down his face, which gleamed with sweat. Much hotter here than LA, right? And it's only March. He gestured toward the empty styrofoam bowls on the table. You like Taiwanese food? Even the broiled intestines and the vermicelli? My daughter eats very well. Wah, like you then. Lee jabbed a finger into my father's side. Uncle Lee, have you eaten yet? Lee smiled. She's quite mature, good manners. He glanced at my father approvingly. All foreign-born girls, not this way. Sometimes you hear stories about overseas children. I felt my cheeks warm under Lee's scrutiny. And your Mandarin isn't bad, Lee said. I thought your father was exaggerating, going on about my daughter Jane doing this and that, memorized the periodic table when she was only 12, super number one classical piano. My mother stuck me in Saturday Chinese school for years. Lee and I used to compete on the university badminton courts, Baba said. I was glad for the subject change. When I moved back here, I went looking for a game at those same courts, and I saw him there, believe it or not. In our college days, the girls crowded the bleachers, Lee said. Just to catch a glimpse of your father in those white athletic shorts. Lee, don't make up stories. Sometimes he even played bare chest, Lee said, grinning. He pantomimed, pulling off his shirt with a flourish of his arms. Quite a scene you created, brother. You, Baba? Not me, he replied. You must be remembering someone else, Lee. Don't be so modest, said Lee. You were the school prince. Baba shook his head. We all knew he'd be the one to go to America. I was lucky, that's all. Luck, Lee exclaimed. You're brilliant. You worked hard. I made certain choices, Baba said, left or right. Like deciding to move back here, I said, with more force than I intended. And stay here, I added. Or was that luck? A silence. Then Lee laughed lightly, a sound almost as if he were clearing his throat. 
She exchanged a look with my father, and I saw something pass between them, the wordless language adults believe only they know how to speak. My father was silently apologizing to Lee. My daughter is a moody, sensitive girl, prone to bursts of emotion, and something about these old stories put her in a sour mood. She's in her last year of high school, but still childish. I better get her home. The university students your father helps are the lucky ones now. Lee's eyes fell on me and I forced a smile to my lips. I nodded, pretending to agree, but something about the way he spoke about my father in the old days gave me the creeps. I couldn't imagine Baba like that at all. Someone that girl swooned over? Who was that person? The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. The Writer's Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.